If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Alan Berg's show broadcast weekdays from 8 to noon on KOA 850 AM in Denver, Colorado. He gave great radio and had a local audience a quarter of a million strong and two million nationally. The clips of the show that I've listened to are as confrontational, shouty, and delicious to the ear as you can imagine. He had a high nasally voice and a great sense of delivery. He was quick-witted and abrasive. I can understand the draw his audience found in him. And he was unlike most famous people. His home address and telephone number were listed in the phone book. Here, Alan Berg is described in Rolling Stone. On and off the air, he enjoys making fun of his looks and often describes himself as ugly. He is tall and thin like a toothpick, and his eyes are those of an 80-year-old man. A full whitish beard covers his pockmarked face. He is not handsome. Yet when he begins to talk, his face comes alive his words altering the way one perceives him. By some trick of eye or ear, he becomes better looking the longer he speaks. Berg has what all true entertainers have, presence, the power to make you see what isn't there. Hired in the winter of 1981, Berg billed himself as the man you love to hate. But Judith Berg, his ex-wife, told the Denver Post that Alan wasn't much like the raging, controversial personality he presented on the air. The angry image was largely shtick. Writer Stephen Singular called Alan Berg a clown, yet he has grasped how everything, everything from buying lettuce to making love, has been politicized. And this is funny too. People aren't as good, they aren't as enlightened, as they thought they were a decade or two ago, and they are worried and frustrated by the discovery. He makes terrible fun of our confusion and limitations. He appears to be one of the few public figures I have come across who is living now, in this decade. A listener interviewed by the same writer said they often got mad at Berg, but always returned to the show. They said they never felt alone when his show was on. Alan Berg was born in Chicago in 1934, the son of an inexcusable dentist, as Alan would put it. Quote, On the air, he projects tremendous anger, sometimes laced with bitterness, talking about his father. Growing up, his father practiced in a Christian neighborhood and tried to pass himself off as a Gentile with his patients all the while attending synagogue on the weekends. His hypocrisy infuriated Alan. I despise my father for that. He said no one would accept him if they knew he was Jewish. Well, those were tough times, but they weren't that tough. 
my father was just plain confused. He was a hypocrite and a notorious bigot against anything that wasn't Jewish. Allenberg was first married at 17 to a nurse he met at a bar who said they couldn't have sex unless they were married, so they got married. The union was annulled after 30 days. Berg attended the University of Colorado and graduated from the DePaul Law School in 1957, and his career-in-law began as a clerk in Chicago. He married again, became a practicing attorney, and developed a dependency to alcohol, as well as a roster of criminal defendants associated with the mafia. During this time, Allen's wife left him and moved to Denver. This was in 1966 or 67. Allen couldn't really remember. And Allen moved there as well to be near her and to attempt an alcohol-free life. He never drank again. His intro to the radio business came in the early 70s when he was working as a manager at a shoe store. He was invited onto the radio talk show of an acquaintance. Two weeks later, he had his own show. Unlike other hosts, Berg didn't plan to be outrageous. His program filled a time slot that had previously been a rock and roll show. Teenagers who tuned in expecting music heard a man with a nasal voice talking fast. Some of them called Berg and said things like, you suck and I hate you. <laughs> he began returning their compliments, venting his bile both on them and more innocent callers, cutting people off with the flick of a switch. Before long, he was a phenomenon, the last angry man spewing venom into the night. On the danger of his job, Allen said he hoped his legal training would keep him from saying something that could get him killed. He said he'd come awfully close. Close isn't the word. In 1979, before his time at KOA, Berg got into a shouting match with a caller who claimed that the local district attorney showed favoritism toward Denver's Jewish community. A week later, the caller burst into the studio while Berg was on the air, pointed a gun at him and said, I'm Fred Wilkins. You will die. Wilkins fled, only to be caught a few days later and charged in the incident. The charges were later dropped. And Wilkins turned out to be the organizer of the Colorado chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. So he did all that to break into the studio with a gun and then just told him he was going to die and then left? That's what it seems like. Huh. And it was also, there are different versions of the story. People say that that's what Berg said happened because he said it live on the air that he had a gun. But then people later said that, oh, he was doing that for publicity. But I, you know. Oh, maybe why the charges were dropped. Maybe, yeah. Asked if he had a death wish, Alan said no. He had a living wish, and every move in his life had been toward it. Over his tenure at KOA 850 AM, the FCC received a dozen-plus complaint letters from offended listeners of Alan Berg's show. I feel safe guessing he was proud of that number and wished it were higher. He also frequently received death threats, though he seemed to brush them off. But on the night of June 18, 1984, threats were born to action, and listeners tuning into KOA were shocked and devastated to hear Ken Hamblin, one of the station's hosts, reporting on the assassination of Alan Berg, as details came in live. Ken is sniffling, he sounds dazed, and his voice is thick with emotion. Here's a clip from that broadcast. 10.39 KOA time, and we're, I'm still trying to piece information together. Um, off the air, I'm finding out that someone passing in a vehicle using a semi-automatic weapon or an automatic weapon, I'm not sure which, fired upon Allen Berg when he was exiting his vehicle in front of his home. Ten or more shell casings, to the best of my ability, or uh, a number that would indicate an automatic weapon was found in the at the scene. And Allen Berg has, in fact 
passed on. He is no longer with us. He'll always be with us, though. To describe how I feel right now, my, I've got a high-pitched ringing sound in my ears. My head is throbbing, and I can't believe it. I can't believe the degree in my classically liberal heart, the degree of hatred, the degree of venomous hatred that we feed and we nourish and we water. We make sure it gets enough sunlight. We harvest it package it and we hide it away for stormy days so that we'll always have enough hatred to munch on. Alan Berg was a purveyor of words. Alan Berg was a purveyor of ideas. You can't kill words and you can't kill ideas. And Alan always used to say, they're out there, but you can't worry about them. They're out there. You can't worry about them. You, you never know, you know, you never know where the nuts are going to come from is what he used to say. So you live from day to day. It's 1042 on a very, very, very blue evening. I'm very, very, very angry. It's a violent world. Somebody tonight, somebody out there, I, can, I know, I can, I can feel your presence. I can feel your presence listening to KOA to feel the result of your handiwork. You're a loser, man. You're a loser talk show host or a dime a dozen and you made him immortal you made him a part of me and you gave value to everything that ever justified your sick act tonight it's 10 48 in the evening i'm ken hamblin i've got id in my pocket and i got a clock in front of me and that's about all i can tell you right now alan berg was on his way home from a dinner with his ex-wife he dropped her off at her place and had just pulled into his driveway smoking a cigarette as he climbed out of his Volkswagen, Alan was hit with 12 point-blank rounds from a silencer-fitted Mac-10, which was a disturbingly popular gun in the 80s. Sold as a semi-automatic weapon for $300, the Mac-10 took only minutes and a few tools to convert into an automatic submachine gun, capable of letting loose 1,200 rounds per minute. This designation allowed consumers to skirt the $200 federal tax for purchasing automatic weapons and to avoid all registration requirements for such a firearm. An ATF firearms expert once said a small stack of coins placed behind the trigger was enough to convert the gun to automatic fire, if only temporarily. Two years after its approval through ATF, the Bureau's Director of Criminal Enforcement wrote that the pistol has no sporting or hunting value. Principal demand appears to be for use by illegal arms and narcotics traffickers. In 1982, the ATF finally declared the MAC-10 to be a fully automatic weapon, but to that point, over 30,000 were in people's hands. That same year, nearly 300 converted MAC-10s had been seized by law enforcement, mostly involving drug-related crime. The boxy, utilitarian weapon was found to be quite popular with survivalist types, a sect of neo-Nazis known as the Silent Brotherhood, and the Hell's Angels motorcycle gang. Berg's body lay next to his car, with his right foot still hooked inside the doorframe. Denver Deputy DA William Buckley detailed multiple gunshot wounds to Berg's head and neck. 45 caliber shell casings were scattered about the scene. No fingerprints were recovered from the casings. From the Denver Post, the courses of the bullets through Berg's torso were hard to estimate because of the probable twisting of his body at the time he was shot. Two slugs struck Berg in the head near the left eye and exited on the right side of the neck, 
and two more hit him on the left side of the head and exited downward on the right side of the neck. Another struck the left side of the head and exited at the back of the head. A further seven rounds struck Allen's arms and upper body. He was shot from about five feet away. The bullets went through and through, lodging into and splintering the garage door behind him. Allen Berg was 50 years old. From what you know, was he purposely trying to agitate people or was he someone that just didn't have an issue with confrontation and was willing to have these conversations or was he kind of one of the first shock jocks and he was going out of his way just to piss people off to have those arguments? Kind of all of that. I imagine that he probably would have preferred if it was possible to have just casual, calm, Mm. respectful discourse between people, but that is impossible especially when you're talking about live AM radio and strangers calling in. (laughs) Yeah. So he probably would have preferred that, but then his audience wouldn't have been very big. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think he had to become something. Embrace it a little. And like his ex-wife said, it was shtick. You know, it was a character. It's like other people like that. Like, I mean, I'm sure Howard Stern. Right. That's a character to some degree. Um, So, yeah, he was like that. And there's a a clip that I was going to put in the episode, but it just the, the, the sound quality wasn't very good of him talking to a woman who says that God fills her gas tank for free. And he goes from that transitioning into a, a live uh, ad read for a restaurant <laughs> where he talks about how he can't get things for free, but if he brings her, he might. And then he transfers and then he ends up talking to a minister who has a lot of really like kind of insightful things to say. But then this minister ends the conversation by saying, oh, the guy who runs whatever the Duggars church is, mm-hmm. is like a real smart guy and has a lot of cool things to say about Christianity. So it was a real, it's, there's only a few clips of him like available online, but it was just, it was a great little meal right there where I got a taste of everything right. that Allenberg was. Almost like he's willing to play devil's advocate for whatever the devil's advocate side is to a conversation. And he seems to be willing to, yeah, to take on the danger associated with that. And what, what I think is true is that a lot of the people who come on and talk to him and say horrible things, racist things, you know, those are the cowards. Right. They'd never say that to a person's face. Oh, yeah. That's the original comment section. Yeah. I'm anonymous. Oh, yeah. Radio trolls. Yeah. Yeah. Denver Police Sergeant John Colbert said, speaking of the investigation status, we just don't have much. We have zero. By the next morning, the investigation grew into the largest in the department's history. Here is Ken Hamblin from the same broadcast, speaking about his contentious relationship with Alan Berg and the anger he is experiencing. I said we had some cat fights, and we did. Damn it, we used to go round and round about Berg cigarette smoking. And I used to work the midnight to five in the morning shift, and twice a week, he'd start damn trash fires. And I fought with Berg because I could not believe that someone, an adult, could be as legitimately inept as he was. I couldn't believe it. Man couldn't, he couldn't open a can of beans with a manual can opener. He thought I was from another planet. He thought I was crazy when I would talk to him about obligation. Berg, you got an obligation not to burn the damn place down. Stop dropping cigarette butts in the cellophane lined trash basket. Alan was um, a funny kind of person. Not funny, funny as you knew him on the air, but. He's miserable in many ways. We used to talk about that a lot. And he would say to me, are you happy? How often are you happy? I said, Alan, let me tell you something. I'm probably happy about 50% of the time. 
And he said, consider yourself lucky. It was funny how this conversation came about because Alan always talked about violence and he always talked about how he didn't subscribe to it and he always talked about how it was futile to protect yourself. God, I remember he treated me like garbage when I first started. I mean, I was all hot to meet Alan Berg. Yeah, it was my first radio job. This is it. I think of the nights that I would defend Alan against those people that would say he was racist or sexist or some such thing. Not going to be with us in the morning. I guess that's... I wish this were a misguided broadcast of Austin Wells' War of the Worlds because then it would be a big hoax and and at five, whatever time the sun is due to come up tomorrow morning, as the shadows pull back, buildings downtown begin to reflect back that golden light, we'd be all able to say, April Fool, but it's not even April. It's tonight. And I feel as though every black thing I ever predicted, every injustice I knew we were capable of, one more time, it's been proven to me. It's always proven to me. When I said that man is intrinsically evil and good is impressed upon him, I'm told, I was told that I was too cynical. I'm still cynical and I've got one less friend. And that hurts. That hurts a great deal. Your lives will go on tomorrow and mine will go on tomorrow. It'll pass into history. We'll continue here at KOA right after this. It was a live eulogy, straight from his shocked brain and transmitted into the ether, maybe even to a place further out than we can conceive, where Alan could hear his friend's words. And here's another quote about Alan Berg from Stephen Singular, writing for Rolling Stone. He was always rummaging around inside of evil, trying to figure it out, to pin it down and hold it up for public scrutiny. He was intensely aware that it emerges from behind a thousand smiles, and he was always telling us that the thing is right there inside of us, each of us, and we need to ferret it out for ourselves. It occurs to me that evil might be nothing more than the choking off of that process, the death of communication. Stephen Singular would go on to write the book Talk to Death, The Life and Murder of Alan Berg and the Rise of Neo-Nazis. Talk Radio, a play written and first performed in 1987, is based on Berg and his assassination. The play was adapted into a film of the same name, directed by Oliver Stone. Both versions star Eric Bogosian, the original playwright, who figures most prominently for me in his role as the villain in Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, <laughs> featuring an uncomfortable-to-be-near-Steven-Seagal performance by Katherine Heigl. Denver held a huge memorial service for Alan Berg, attended by everyone from corporate executives to the local bag ladies. This is a quote I would not call, I would not say bag ladies. A week after his murder, people drove home from work with their lights on dim as a tribute to Berg. Seems dangerous. It's not nice, but dangerous. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Because he loved fog, we all had our high beams on to celebrate his life. You can't mess around like that in Denver. The, the, the weather changes. It's treacherous. It just turns on a dime. God. Caught in a snow tornado or something. <laughs> it's a mile high city. And we'll be there next year for the True Crime Paranormal Podcast Festival. Hooray! Berg's absence at the radio station was not filled until three months later, 
when Roy Fox of KDKA in Pittsburgh took over the 9 a.m. to noon slot. Criminal Investigations Chief Don Mulnick said anybody within the sound of Allenberg's voice might have had a motive to kill him. Unut White, the last producer to work with Berg, recalls the shows shortly before he was killed when he confronted members of the Christian identity movement who believed Jews were descended from Satan. Berg challenged the members. That interchange got him on the list and got him moved up the list to be assassinated, Anut continued, asserting that even if Allen had known the true danger of taunting the fringe group, he would not have canceled or changed his tack for those shows. One of the men he spoke with on February 13, 1984, was an organizer of Denver's Ku Klux Klan chapter named David Lane, who called the show to discuss a supposed Jewish plot to overthrow the world. David Lane of Iowa turned away from traditional Christianity after growing up as the adopted son of a Lutheran minister. That would certainly do it. Yeah. (laughs) In the 60s, he joined the ultra-right-wing anti-communist extremist group, the John Birch Society. And actually, maybe I should say here that when I mention other groups, just assume, maybe I won't say it, they are ultra-right-wing extremist groups. Yeah, it's not like also the Girl Scouts. Yeah. And also the Elks Club. I'm just kind it's of like KKK, Proud Boys. Every group I mention will be something like that. Yes, <laughs> essentially. So I just got, when I was writing this, I actually got tired of writing out oh, yeah. who this group was and what they are. It's basically like every group here is essentially Nazis. They all suck. Nazis. They're all racists. Yeah. By the late 70s, he was an organizer for the Denver KKK, and Lane's own research had convinced him that the Western nations were ruled by a Zionist conspiracy, essentially that Jews controlled the world and had a diabolical goal to annihilate all white people. Pretty goofy stuff. Classic story. Just silly Billy. Lane felt the groups in which he'd been a member were all talk and no action. Mainly associated with the hate group Aryan Nations, David Lane wanted others, as obsessed as he was, to take the fight to his imaginary foe. In 1983, he met a man named Robert Matthews, who worked as a recruiter for the Nazi group National Alliance, and he soon joined Matthew's brand-new fringe group, Bruderschweigen, which is German for Silent Brotherhood. Robert Matthews was originally from Medellin Falls in northeast Washington, a handful of miles from both Idaho and the Canadian border. It is a tiny town with a population under 300. Born in 1953, Robert dropped out of high school during his senior year and formed an anti-communist militia, the Sons of Liberty. Matthews grew up in Arizona, where he joined an income tax resistance movement. In 1973, he was arrested by IRS agents for submitting false information on his tax withholding form, and he was sentenced to six months probation and warned that the next of those offenses would be a felony. Robert moved back to Medellin Falls in July 1974 after his probation ceased. There, he purchased 60 acres of woods and named it Matthews Acres. In 1980, Matthews joined National Alliance, a white supremacist group founded by William Luther Pierce, a former Oregon State University physics professor and officer in the American Nazi Party. In February 1982, Matthews began attending church services at the Aryan Nations in Hayden Lake, Idaho, which was described as a 20-acre compound surrounded by barbed wire. Shortly thereafter, Matthews founded the White American Bastion, a splinter group organized to attract white Christian families to the Northwest. 
In September 1983, he gave a short speech at a National Alliance convention in Arlington, Virginia, reporting on his efforts to recruit farmers and ranchers into the white racialist movement. Ending with a call to arms, Matthews' speech received the only standing ovation of the convention. While at the convention, Matthews renewed acquaintance with Thomas Martinez, a former Ku Klux Klansman from Philadelphia, whom he unsuccessfully tried to recruit into the white American bastion. Their close friendship would eventually prove to be Matthews' undoing. In late September 1983, Matthews and eight other bags of shit with the same ideologies met at Matthews Acres in a shack they called the Barracks and formed a new group, far more radical than major organizations like Aryan Nations and the KKK. Those present at the meeting, aside from Matthews, were Kenneth Loft, his neighbor and best friend, David Lane, whom I already mentioned, Daniel Bauer, Denver Parmenter, Randolph George Dewey, and Bruce Pierce from Aryan Nations. Also Richard Harold Kemp and William Soderquist, recent recruits from the National Alliance. Robert Matthews had a plan, of which the final step was to liberate the Pacific Northwest as a homeland for whites only, which, not a fun fact, was the way the territory was initially established. As far as their ethos went, the Silent Brotherhoods was ripped directly from the pages of the apocalyptic 1978 white supremacist power fantasy novel, The Turner Diaries. It was written by Andrew MacDonald, a pseudonym of William Luther Pierce, founder of National Alliance. Here's an unintentionally hilarious quote from The Turner Diaries. Liberalism is an essentially feminine, submissive worldview. Perhaps a better adjective than feminine is infantile. It is the worldview of men who do not have the moral toughness, the spiritual strength to stand up and do single combat with life, who cannot adjust to the reality that the world is not a huge pink and blue padded nursery in which the lions lie down with the lambs and everyone lives happily ever after. Nor should spiritually healthy men of our race even want the world to be like that if it could be so. That is an alien, essentially oriental approach to life, the worldview of slaves rather than of free men of the West. The Silent Brotherhood's original assembly of nine were ready to start their sad revolution, and they'd so closely modeled their impending plans after those of the protagonist group from the novel, they took on its name, The Order. In the Turner Diaries, The Order's fundamental aim was the violent overthrow of the Zionist Occupation Government, or ZOG, a euphemism for the United States government, which they believed was controlled by a Jewish cabal. In the novel, The Order's revolution is financed by armed robberies, counterfeiting, and other violent crimes intended to disrupt the American economy. And that's exactly what Matthews and his gang of neo-Nazis decided to do. The Order went full throttle into criminal life. From October 1983 to October 1984, they ran riot, cracking off a series of brazen, orchestrated robberies, while somehow maintaining their anonymity. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. 
Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. The newborn terrorist organization's first foray into major crimes took place on October 28, 1983, with the armed robbery of the Worldwide Video Store in Spokane. Their take was less than $400. Members Pierce, Dewey, Matthews, and Dan Bauer carried out the robbery. During this period, David Lane, whose codename was Lone Wolf, began setting up a counterfeiting operation at Aryan Nations in Hayden Lake, Idaho. He was assisted by new recruit Gary Yarbrough. Yarbrough had spent three years in an Arizona prison for possession of cannabis and burglary. During his sentence, he was reprimanded for, quote, having white power literature in his cell, threatening or assaulting other inmates and guards, possessing a variety of homemade knives, and tearing apart a rabbit with his teeth and smearing the blood on his bare chest. Where did he get a rabbit? I don't know where he got the rabbit. In his prison cell. In Arizona, I don't know, maybe they have like a yard outside, like oh, this deserty. Oh, they do currently, so and they're it's probably, very possible. Yeah, a little jackrabbit came in. Anyways, oh my so God. he did stuff like that. There, Gary also aligned himself with the Aryan Brotherhood, and he began corresponding with the Aryan Nation's church after answering a church advertisement in a motorcycle magazine in 1978. 
he joined the hate group in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, after he was released the next year. You know, he's just, I mean, it's just, it's a classic story. These people are like lonely, yeah. desperate. They have nothing. No, no group, no family. And angry about something. Something yeah. has set them off or put them in this direction. Peter Lake, a journalist who infiltrated Aryan nations in 1983, remembered Yarborough having a subservient attitude toward authority. Not a leader. He's a soldier. Beside the counterfeiting printing press, he kept a picture of Hitler in a parade saluting. He had a Nazi armband and a cross. This was all in his workspace. Peter Lake was later found to be one of the names on the Order's list of targets. In December, Order member and second-in-command Bruce Pierce tried using a fake $50 bill at the Valley Mall in Union Gap and was arrested for the attempt. He was also carrying a concealed weapon and took a charge for that as well. Interviewed by the Secret Service, he told them nothing. Later that month, Matthews robbed the Innes Arden Citibank branch. He took almost 26000 from the bank, although most of it was made useless by an exploding dye pack tucked within the bills. The next month, Bruce Pierce and Gary Yarbrough, whose codename was Yosemite Sam, robbed a Washington Mutual Savings Bank branch in Spokane. And in March 1984, the gang robbed a Continental Armored Transport truck doing a collection stop at a Fred Meyer supermarket in Shoreline, Washington, a plan which had been in motion since the previous November. The gang were fully armed and did not speak during the robbery. Instead, they held up signs ordering the drivers to give up the money. They took six money bags off the guard, which added up to a $43,345 take. Bruce Pierce pleaded guilty to passing those counterfeit bills on April 3, 1984. He strutted into court thinking he'd received probation or a short jail sentence and was instead given two years in federal prison. The judge told him to settle his affairs and report to the U.S. Marshal Service in three weeks. This would be before noon on April 24th to be taken into custody. You're putting a lot of trust in someone who is shown to be untrustworthy. Well, you know, the thing is, though, that before the order was formed, though all of those people were all the people in the order, the original nine were known to law enforcement because of their association with the hate groups. None of them had committed a felony, not one. Mm. So well, I guess they weren't like exactly on the radar. Not to always be skeptical or judgmental, but you also have to I have to wonder how many of the officers were in Coeur d'Alene in Hayden Lake, Idaho, where the KKK <laughs> and Aryan Nations and all that were? Is yeah, that what you're saying? Yeah, that maybe they really knew of the guys because they had seen them at the meeting the night before, you know? Yeah. To the point I was saying about police officers and military and the connection to white supremacists, one, white supremacists seek out police enforcement for that connection. Kind of the same idea as the mafia, having that protection. So back in 2006, studies were done and the FBI was warning about white supremacy infiltrating law enforcement. And actually, uh, in Washington state, last year, legislation was passed that requires departments to inquire into police candidates' ties to extremist groups and allows the state to revoke their certification if they are affiliated with those organizations. So other states are also looking into that. So there are people that are at least acknowledging that it's becoming a problem and a real safety concern, and then they're actually doing something about it. Finally. So there you go. Five days before that deadline, on April 19th, Pierce and several members of the gang went to Seattle to case another armored truck. Their target vehicle would be pulling out of the Northgate Mall, loaded with the weekend cash and receipts from several large stores. April 22nd, Gary Yarborough planted a time bomb in the Embassy XXX Theater on Union 
between second and third. The plan was to set the explosive off that day and then call in a fake bomb threat the next day to divert police resources while the order hijacked the money truck. Hmm. The heist took place the next afternoon. A white van pulled up to the armored transport car and two men wearing ski masks leaped out and pushed the guard loading money bags to the ground. They each carried at least two weapons and again they did not speak during the robbery. There was a second car holding two men who were also part of the robbery. The bags were loaded into the van and the cars, which were soon found abandoned, and took off. No one was injured, and the gang took over half a million dollars, but they had to destroy 300000 of it because it was in check form. Matthews used some of the money for a buying spree in Missoula, Montana, where he and a new recruit bought several firearms, ammunition, miscellaneous weapons, and a state-of-the-art computer system which had, I'm sure, a green monitor <laughs> and those big took old a, floppies. Took up a lot of space. Made sounds like, I don't know, an old cash register. <laughs> <laughs> On Sunday afternoon, April 29th, 1984, Pierce and Kemp decided to plant a small time bomb underneath the congregation Ahavath Israel Synagogue, located at North 27th and West Bannock Streets in Boise, Idaho. It was the first bomb Pierce had ever assembled, and the blast did little damage. There were no injuries, but the message to the Jewish community was clear. The next month, Aryan Nations member Walter Edward West was murdered by gang members Dewey, Kemp, David Charles, and James Dye. West was the person tasked with operating the counterfeiting press at the Aryan Nations compound in Idaho. Robert Matthews ordered the killing after hearing rumors that West had been telling stories of their recent crime spree. His body was never found. Later testimony laid the actual killing at George Dewey's feet. He shot West in the head after six-foot-seven Kemp knocked him down with a hammer blow. Three weeks later, Alan Berg would be killed in Denver. On Monday afternoon, June 18, 1984, the group assembled at a Motel 6 in Denver to review plans for Berg's assassination. Pierce had insisted on being the trigger man and brought along a 45 caliber Ingram Mac 10 submachine gun for the job. At about 7 p.m., the hit team established surveillance on Berg's townhouse located at 1445 Adams Street. When Berg pulled his Volkswagen Beetle into the driveway at 9.21 p.m., Lane pulled in behind him. Matthews jumped out of the front passenger side door, opening the rear door for Pierce, who ran up the driveway. When Berg exited his car with a bag of groceries, Pierce opened fire, point blank, hitting Berg 12 times before the gun jammed. The group rushed back to the Motel 6, gathered their belongings, and headed out of town. Who was it that was killed right before the radio guy? Uh, I'm sorry, it's a lot of names, so it's hard for me it to It was a, a just another a member who was working uh, on the counterfeiting press at Aryan Nations in oh. Hayden Lake, and there was a rumor that started going around that got to Matthews that West was talking about, oh, okay. was just spilling so it to just So they took care anybody. of the guy. So they, yeah, they just took him out. They, had, they, they picked him up. They had already dug the grave for him, and they just took him out here yeah, and then Damn. hit him with a hammer and shot him in the head, buried him, and he was never found. Wow, that's one theme that you will that 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 is pretty common in stories like this and events like this. There is no loyalty. Mm. Well, again, mafia. Yep, same idea. That fake. That fake. I'm uh, so loyal. Yeah. I have to kill you because you weren't loyal. The to me. Uh, what is that called? The omerta, like the the, the blood oath. Mm. I'll never turn on you, and they all do it. <laughs> on June twenty fourth. Counterfeiter David Lane delivered $30,000 in fake bills to Thomas Martinez. Thomas Martinez was the guy that Matthews had met 
at that conference where he mm. did the speech and he tried to recruit him and didn't go well. And uh, I did say back there that it would prove to be his undoing. Mm. So that's Thomas Martinez. Okay. And I think I heard that he actually went by Martinez because it sounded less oh, okay. uh, Latino or right. Hispanic, yeah. which is just silly. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just right That's there. Kind of not really if a you name. Just look at the, you just look at the letters in it. The big break in the case occurred the next month when Thomas Martinez was arrested in Pennsylvania, where the other counterfeiting operation was established, for passing counterfeit bills. He used a fake $10 bill to buy lottery tickets, which seems dumb because they were literally printing money, but it was actually just because the group wanted to see if, they, if the bills would work. Oh, okay. But he got caught immediately. <laughs> they did not work. <laughs> no. And he was set to go on trial, but decided to become an FBI informant instead, which is definitely, in my opinion, the better choice. Martinez gave the authorities detailed information about the order and his knowledge of their crimes. He also agreed to collect more information about the gang's current activities. Martinez was eventually put into federal witness protection and given three years probation. In July, Matthews and 10 other order members in ski masks robbed a Brinks armored truck of $3.6 million, or nearly 11 today. This is in Ukiah, a spot north of Eureka, California. Police said the thieves made their move on the armored car as it lumbered up a hill on a rural highway. They wedged it between two pickup trucks, spread a carpet of nails around it, and fired armor-piercing bullets and shotgun blasts as they held up signs commanding the guards inside to get out or die. <sighs> After getting away, the group of 12 realized they'd made two huge errors during the robbery. When they pulled into a day-use area on Lake Mendocino, north of Ukiah, they took stock and saw that Matthews lost a 9mm Smith & Wesson semi-automatic as the armored truck was pilfered. Their second mistake was that one of the gang had taken a shotgun off of one of the Brinks guards, which could easily link them to the crime. And the FBI soon traced the 9mm to Andrew Barnhill, who was a newish recruit to the order. I know I don't have a lot of gun experience, but I feel like if I was in the midst of something like that, I would know it was in my hand and not casually set it down somewhere. Of course, you would think that. <laughs> uh, I think that for the robberies, I think for the, for the ones who were doing the robberies, the guys who were actually doing the strong arm part, mm -hmm. strong arm part, were uh, had at, at least two guns on them. So oh. I think they had a, like a probably a rifle, a shotgun, and then like a sidearm. Mm. So it, maybe it fell out or maybe he, yeah, he just put it down. Like, <laughs> I got to grab these bags of money. So they were, they were like a crack team. They were great at what they were doing. And, and but when you got to the fine details, they were, they were not <laughs> very good at all. Yeah. That robbery of the, the truck on the highway, there was one member in a car following that truck. Oh. And they were in like an old beat up car and the person inside was this like 50 year old man, but he was dressed up as an old lady with like a wig and stuff. <gasps> he radioed to the trucks that were waiting on the side of the highway and then they swooped in wow. and took the truck down. Yeah, that's wild. And the government doesn't take kindly to that. I told you about my friend's former husband who had robbed his own Brinks truck that he was working in. And he was spoiling her with riches in Vegas, which she was like, wow, you suddenly have a lot of money. And then the FBI tackled him in the casino and took him out. And I don't know if he's out yet. So don't do it. They were not on their honeymoon, but not that long after being married. And she was gobsmacked by it. She had no clue he had done it. Brinks offered a $350,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the robbers. And on July 25th, the FBI released composite drawings of eight to 10 men 
who committed the robbery, drawn from witness descriptions. The order's next target was the vault at Brink's Armored Car Service Depot in San Francisco, said to contain between 30 and $50 million. Robert Matthews had a contact, Charles E. Ostrout, a supervisor at the depot. He had visited Matthews' white American bastion in 1982, complaining that minorities were getting all the jobs and promotions at Brink's. Ostrout had given Matthews the intel on the truck they'd robbed outside of Eureka, and he also recruited the operations manager at the depot, Ronald King, to be their inside man. But that robbery never came to be. The FBI began to close in on the order, thanks to the gun Matthews left behind in the robbery, as well as the dirt Thomas Martinez spilled on them. By August, the Bureau had a list of many of its members. With the intel provided by Thomas Martinez, the FBI decided to approach Order Member Gary Yarborough's property in Sandpoint, Idaho, on October 18, 1984, four months to the day after Allenberg's murder. Three agents were fired on as they drove up in a U.S. Forest Service truck. They backed off and returned that night with a warrant, but Gary had escaped into the surrounding woods. They're moving around a bunch. Oh, yeah. All, they're, they're scattered, yeah. So they, I think they're coming together for the crimes, and then they, they're oh, breaking apart okay. so that they can't be, I think, identified, yeah. In an upstairs room, agents said they found a three-foot-high portrait of Adolf Hitler surrounded by black crepe paper and candles. Inside the cabin were also found, and this is a very long list, incriminating documents, Aryan Nations uniforms, gas masks, knives, assault vests, radio frequency scanners, night vision scopes, booby traps, gas and fragmentation grenades, four loaded crossbows, two 12-gauge shotguns, five semi-automatic rifles, a bolt-action rifle, a 45 caliber Colt pistol, a Winchester 22 caliber rifle, a 45 caliber Mac-10 machine pistol, and a 308 caliber Mac-10 machine gun with a silencer, more than 6,000 rounds of ammunition, bandoliers loaded with 308 caliber ammunition, 110 blasting caps, 110 blasting caps, 100 sticks of dynamite, and the cherry on top, one and a half pounds of C4 plastic explosives. I guess these guys don't care, but that would I couldn't sleep in my house if that's going on. One false candle situation and boom. Yeah, they're. I feel like they're really, they're really riding on the high of what they're doing. Yeah, and probably enjoying. Well, they have all this money now, so they can amass actual oh, stockpiles right. of weapons. Really fill in the fantasy. And what sucks too is it is laughable because it's also like I hate communists and I hate Jewish people, but I'm gonna rob a bunch of people because that will somehow make things right and all these things. So, so much of it is so laughable. But that's also very dangerous because if you dismiss it and just laugh it off, that can add fuel to that fire. And then you things aren't taken as seriously and can make things really dangerous, too. But it is really hard to not laugh at it. Here's This is a quote here related to what you were just saying. In spite of Berg's killing, the FBI would argue that the order was not a major threat because of their small numbers. This would prove a grave underestimation, though the order may have been relatively small Further investigations into the group would reveal a highly militarized web of white supremacist groups across the country who were linked to numerous crimes and violent plots. Those plots included the establishment of guerrilla warfare training camps, the destruction of utilities and water supply pollution, and a plan to dismantle the government by killing federal officials. So like you said, yeah, they seem small time and foolish, but they had the determination. Yeah, they're still do doing they doing. things. They're yeah. still harming people and... By this point, most of the Order's members were split into two groups, one led by Bruce Pierce and the other by Robert Matthews. 
And it wasn't for any sort of like they were disagreeing. They just it was just to kind of, I think, keep their group smaller, mm. and more manageable to move around and hide. Matthews set up an answering machine in a vacant office he rented in Tulsa so the groups could maintain contact and strategize their moves. The day after Thanksgiving, November 23, 1984, Gary Yarborough and Robert Matthews picked up Thomas Martinez at Portland International Airport. Remember, Martinez is now working as an FBI informant, mm. and he was sent to Portland to help the feds wrangle the other gang members. He was probably sweating through his clothes and had the old bubble guts sitting in a car with murderers. The three drove to the Capri Motel in Portland, where they had two rooms rented. The FBI planned to follow Matthews from the motel to his unknown safe house location. The order had rented five houses near Mount Hood Meadows Ski Area, 60-plus miles from Portland but the Bureau didn't know that yet. A team of 20 agents surrounded the motel early the following morning. As agents moved on the rooms, one of the suspects, likely Matthews, ran along a second-floor balcony. One of the group of law enforcement officers staged at the front desk fired through the lobby glass as he passed by, missing the runner, but shooting the manager in the shoulder. The manager was treated at a hospital and released. One agent was shot in the knee and foot by Robert Matthews, who was carrying a 38 caliber handgun. Matthews was hit in the hand with a shotgun blast and escaped on foot. His hand was mangled. Matthews left behind his car, various weapons including a silencer-equipped MAC-10 submachine gun and a hand grenade, $30,000 in cash from the Brinks robbery in Ukiah, rental agreements for the houses near Mount Hood, and a book of names and phone numbers and code. <laughs> hey, Robert, put it in a backpack, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Yarborough was captured at the motel after falling 15 feet through a window and becoming tangled in bushes. Before hooking back up with Matthews, he had been holed up at a remote North Idaho paramilitary training site. Processing the rooms, agents found a draft of a letter that called upon all law enforcement to resign immediately, lest they be destroyed by their white American Revolutionary Army. The FBI combed the area from Portland southeast through Gresham, Sandy, and into the Mount Hood National Forest, but lost Matthews' trail along the way. Robert Matthews' flight from the FBI included a quick break-in at a home where he tore up a bedsheet to use as a handage. That's a hand bandage. He then hitchhiked his way back to the rental houses near Mount Hood. When he arrived, he told the order members there that it was time to abandon the area and move to three safe houses, described as secluded vacation homes they had rented at Smuggler's Cove on Whidbey Island which is in Puget Sound, near Seattle. This is where the standoff would take place. Next week, the death of Robert Matthews and the downfall of the Order, whose members, once captured, could barely wait to turn on one another. Well, that's very interesting. And as always, it's nice to have a reminder. I mean, it's not nice to have. It's important to have the reminders that these people are everywhere. Your next-door neighbor could be a white supremacist. Yeah, they hide in plain sight. Your teacher. I mean, you even said there was a guy who was a professor. Yep. You are well-educated. You are an educator. And so you know the logic of all of this, and then you're still involved in it. Well, they see what they want to see. Well, yeah. In that research, yeah. I know you started working on this quite some time ago, so the timing is quite interesting given the state of the world right now. And yeah, it weirdly just sort of worked out that these sorts yeah. of events are being reported on quite a lot. Yeah. It just sucks. But here you are telling the story from what is 
not that long ago because some of us were born in that decade, but, you know, long enough ago that it should have been, wow, let's figure this out and get it fixed. And it's just like from the beginning of time until the end of time, that will exist. Well, thank you for sharing, Josh. I look forward to part two next week. And on top of part two, Emily will be back. So that'll be exciting for everybody. I suppose. (laughs) No, we've missed her. (laughs) But we had her dog the whole time and it was great. Yeah, it's a tough trade. Shout out to Henry. We love you. We wish that you were ours. (laughs) Their brazenness escalated. 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 Boy, now I have to like read all this stuff. Alan. Alan. Where's your shocked gasp? He married a gam. He married a gam. Who's a gam? It's a a dame. It's a game. It's a gam. It's a girl. It's a dame. Asked if he had a... Oh my God, that was loud. I'm so sorry. Asked. Excuse me. (laughs) Asked if he had... Excuse me, I say. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't know you were going again so quickly. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Fuck it. Telling lies again. I said it though instead of through. I think it's because my hands are cold. I can't think. Just got like, I'm holding this tablet with frozen hot dog fingers. Am I doing, am I still doing okay? Yeah, you're doing great. Okay. Except for all those slurping noises. So sorry. You little nasty. That shake gave me sloppy mouth. Oh my God. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>